That was Olivia Wills telling us all about economics and the well-being budget. This is Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM and B-Side Stories, stories of the people who make Wellington tick. Can I... Oh, swoop in, Perrine. (laughs) Yes, Laura. Can I just say that was very delightful, especially the song that you composed for it. (laughs) Who knew you had all those talents hidden up your sleeves? Well, um... It sounds like the first song that I've ever made, and it is the first <laughs> song that I've ever made. Uh, but yes, perhaps it's inspired me to make more theme tunes. Perhaps yep. we should have some all the time. B-sides can um, look forward to that. <laughs> and um, fortunately for B-sides, I do not plan to start writing or singing songs on air, so you can all breathe a <laughs> sigh of relief there. Um But we do have a great interview coming up. So we have Bambi Chiva Itzarakun, who's originally from Thailand. She is now living in Wellington, but has lived in places all around the world and has done research and work into statelessness, migration and varying forms of citizenship um, amongst different populations in the world. So she's currently doing her PhD, is also teaching at Vic, and um, recently did some fundraising for for the Mokin people in Thailand. We'll hear a bit more about that later. But welcome to the studio, Bambi. Thanks, Perrine, for having me. Our pleasure. Um, So can you just tell me how you came to kind of focus your life and your studies around issues like statelessness and kind of broader human rights concerns? So one of my first memories of statelessness was when I was eight years old. Um, I have this neighbor who has a nanny who um, I was told she, she was not Thai. She did not have any identification. She did not know where she was from. And she basically had to live with the family, but she had constant fears of being, you know, discovered by the police. And as a young child, I was really confused. I was like, how, how is a person um, not a member of any country? Despite the fact that, of course, she was living among us, which means that, you know, she was part of us. But at the same time, legally, she's not part of us. And that, that reality kind of stuck in my head, but I really didn't have any framework to make sense of it. And yeah, and until um, after the tsunami in 2004, um, I became more aware of the issue of statelessness, particularly in Thailand, in my country, because the Moken, who are the sea um, nomadic population in the southern part of Thailand, um, they also didn't have citizenship, and it became uh, more like a national discussion of the the of the groups of people, various groups of people in Thailand who don't have access to citizenship. And, and so over the years, I became more and more interested um, in this issue. And when the UNHCR, which is the United Nations um, uh, Organization for Refugees, yeah. like the High Commissioner for Refugees, yeah. um, launched a campaign in 2014 to eradicate statelessness around the world, that was when I truly realized that this is a global issue and I decided to focus my PhD on that. Mm. So can you just give us a bit of an explanation of what statelessness means in terms of your studies and what you've observed? 
So um, the international legal definition of statelessness in the international framework is that a stateless person is a person who is not considered a national by any country, by the, the laws you know, of any countries around the world. Right, so they're kind of in limbo. So, yeah, so legally they're not, they're not um, included in any citizenship laws of any country. Um, so there are people who fall into the cracks like this. Um, for example, I'll give you maybe a case of, of one of my participants. Um, one of your participants for in, your PhD yes, for study? Yes, yes yeah. for my PhD studies in Thailand. Um, so my, my research focuses on, on the um, ethnic Shan population in the northern part of Thailand. And so in the northern part of Thailand, we have lots of people from different ethnic groups uh, who are not recognized by the Thai state mm. as citizens because the way the, the citizenship law is constructed, um, it is racially based, you know, based on ethnic and racial um, categories. So people who are not deemed as being part of the Thai um, ethnicity um, they're more likely to, to be excluded from the, the, the legal framework of yeah. what is considered a citizen. So, How would you find yourself? Is it, is it Isha? As a member of the Isha? Shan. Ishan. Shan. Shan. Yeah, Shan. <laughs> the Shan population. How would you find yourself to be not legally recognised? Is it kind of based on centuries of history or...? Um, it's a long history of... of Population movement that is not um, recognized by the state, and as well as the long history of discrimination against the ethnic minority groups in in countries like Thailand and Myanmar. So the Shan is the ethnic minority in both Thailand and Myanmar. Right. So ethnic minorities in general are more prone to be excluded from citizenship laws yeah. and so they're more likely to be stateless. So the Shan is one of such examples. Mm. And um, there are other exclusionary um, legal framework like uh, gender is also one of the aspects of discrimination against um female, that gender. Um, okay. so how, how does that work? So, for example, um, in Nepal, women are not allowed to pass on citizenship to, to their children if they're not married. Uh. So there are, there are mechanisms like this where gender discrimination is at play and that, that you know, results in exclusion, legal exclusion, which results in statelessness. And it's actually a very, very complex issue. Like I, I, I have to say that maybe I didn't, you know, um, do such a great job at explaining everything <laughs> in detail. But um, just to show you that yeah. there are lots of uh, processes at play mm. that that result in the exclusion of a lot of people. There are millions of people who yeah. who are stateless, and there are different degrees of statelessness in. With it, so you know you have a blanket term of statelessness, but in that you might have no citizenship to anywhere or limited recognition. Is that right? Yes. So there are um, among the academic community, we conceptualise statelessness 
in a broader term than the than the international instrument. You know, so we recognize something that is called de facto statelessness, which means that you may legally have the the citizenship, but maybe you are not receiving the protection from the state in the same way as the other groups. So that that is that makes you. Um, yeah, classify, be classified mm. as de facto stateless. Or you can be um, stateless by law, like not being considered mm. um, by the... If you go through the law of, of each country, you're not part of the what would be considered a citizen of any. Right. So there, there are several um, types of statelessness and yeah. there are several reasons why a person is stateless. And, and it's not, so it's not necessarily the same across the board. So, but, but what, what we can see here is that um, there, there are exclusions that are, you know, forms of exclusion that takes place around the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of that. Um, in New Zealand, we probably haven't witnessed the types of statelessness you're talking about as much. I mean, there are degrees of it. And I think, yeah. for example... Um, I actually have read um, an article a while back, a news article yeah. of... Um, I think she was a, a daughter of a British migrant to New Zealand and then anyway has been born in New Zealand and live here or something like that and then uh, one day found out that she doesn't have the New Zealand citizenship so things things like that you know yeah. that you 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 could somehow later discover that you don't have the right type of paperwork to classify or prove right. your membership and this is one of the issues that I'm dealing with in my in my work which is about the the, sometimes the lack of proof um, in the forms that, that the state will recognize as valid. And, and also sometimes there are proof um, in terms of the paper and documents that you have, but um, the state is not willing to believe that the proof that you hold is authentic. So, so there are issues like that, that, you know, um, um, can make a person stateless. So yeah. it could be a lack of documentation or it could be they have the proper documentation but but because of the deeply ingrained discrimination against certain group, um, the the agents of the state might be less inclined to believe that the documents that they have are authentic documents. Mm-hmm. So statelessness is a complex issue. It is. That's in a nutshell. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I'm trying to say. (laughs) Well, thank you for um, your explanation. And um, you mentioned about the New Zealand example of someone growing up and realising they didn't have citizenship. And I think in your PhD research, you've looked at children and how their experience growing up changes as they kind of come of age and face different hurdles as they go. Can you just tell us a bit about what yes. you've been looking at in your PhD? Yes. Um, so my PhD is a long-term ethnographic research, which means that I, I go to the field and I spend a long time um, with the affected population um, over the, the three-year period 
by now. Um, and, and I've been following a group of youth who are um, the age range between 14 and 13 year old until like 18 and 19. Mm. But, but of course, over these three years in the life of a young person, um, there are lots of changes in terms of their identity and, and the life course. And so I've witnessed a lot of the youth and the children who did not understand their statelessness at first. They didn't, they, they didn't because in Thailand you could go to school, you could have a um, certain level of access to health care. So in their everyday experience, on the surface, it, it looks like a normal childhood, like you go to school. Yeah, and you you spend time with your friends, and you you know you don't have to deal with yet the paperwork. But when when the youth become um, teenagers around like fifteen or sixteen year old, usually there will be external circumstances such as having to move school to because the that that school already only have. Um, middle school and they need to go to high school or sometimes when they finish high school they need to apply for university. It is these moments that they realize the that their statelessness really has an impact on on their future mm. because um, they may not have, you know, it, it depends on the understanding of the university and of the people in in the the principals and all of these other people who have the decision to make whether to accept them mm. and see them as okay, we're going to help this person and we're going to admit them and charge them the normal rate. Yeah. Or it could be that no, they're not Thai, so we need to charge them um, a foreigner rate. Oh. Even though that person actually was born in Thailand, has grown up in Thailand throughout. Uh, his or her life, but because, as I said, they, they don't have the, the right type of documents that could allow them to naturalize to become Thai. Mm. And why don't they have that documents? Because their parents were classified as um, non-Thai, the ethnic other. So, so yeah, so it's, it's a um, long story is that <laughs> the, um, the children could grow up not realizing the impact yeah. until their teenage years that they became aware of the limitations of being stateless. Yeah. And and this is a context of Thailand. So um there are other countries who um, I mean where the children might might experience total in exclusion, you know, since their birth. Um but there are also um as I said, the countries like Thailand that um there's partial inclusion. Right. So the children may not experience total exclusion, but might later realize that they don't have the same rights yeah. and the same, even though their belonging for them is that they're part of the country. So with the type of study you're doing, you called it earlier, I think, participant observer. Observation. observation, yes. And so you're actually going with these children or students, you're going with them to school and stuff when you're doing your field research. Yes. So you will be actually observing and you're kind of there as they face these kind of hurdles or realisations. And 
is that kind of a heartbreaking thing to... Yes. <laughs> yes, it's a very... Well, participant observation is a very um, insightful research um, tool. So it allows you to see the daily life of, of the people that you're engaged with. And, and it is a very difficult thing to be observing, you know, to, to be part of, to see the the struggle mm. that your participants, whom you really consider um, close to you and, and on a human level, like they, you're rooting for them, you want them to, to succeed, you want them to be able to go through the difficulty and you're angry that, that there are barriers like this that are um, prohibiting them from fulfilling their potential. So it, it is a really difficult post period and, and position to be in. Um, but at the same time, I I have been able to observe a lot of strength in my participant and the ways that they um, use all kinds of strategies to get by in their daily life as well as to to understand the dynamic they they understand the dynamic of the policies like because it changes quite often and and how how to make sense of all of this and i think the strength that my participants have shown to me um give me hope mm-hmm. and and i really um you know it is a lifelong project to to advocate um for them and with them and and it's it's something that is a long-term, um, yeah, a long-term struggle, a long-term fight. <laughs> it's mm. not going to end in a few years. Can and I jump yeah. in with a question? Yes. I, um, I'm wondering what do you see as the value of your research? Uh, yeah, will observing and writing about these situations, will it help us change anything in the future? Um Yes, I believe in the the power of qualitative research um, because especially in the research like mine that I follow the same group of people for, for you know, longer than six months. It's been like over the period of three years. Um, you, you can have this really human side of the policy. So you, you, you have the insights from... What what is really the impact of the policy on the ground on the life of the people? So you you're collecting on the surface it looks like just human normal people's story, but actually it is the normal people's story that we're interested in, right? It's like the the um, daily struggle and what it means really to to be asking for, for example, A B C D evidence, you know, and and what does that reveal about the system that we're under. Mm. So so I think there is a place for qualitative research to demonstrate the nuance um, insights that you may not get from, uh, you know, quantitative research is important. You need to have those as well, but you need to have them both in, in combination. And also long-term research it is based on a lot of trust that your participant shares with you and and because they they because of that trust you're allowed to see um the impact in a deeper way 
um, that you may not get when you don't know the participants so well. Mm. So um, I think my research, even though it is about the children and their life, in a way it is a critique of, of the approach that we take to address statelessness when we do it only from the legal angle. Yeah. Mm. So oh. one of the things that maybe we could get out of this after, you know, when you've completed your PhD yeah. is that studies like yours will inform social policy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Ideally. <laughs> yes, and, and also, um, yeah, to have a better understanding, I think, of how exclusion really plays out in the life, you know, of, of children. Mm. And and these insights can can be, I think, beneficial for other studies that are not not only about stateless people because exclusion mm. um, is something that every society experiences in one form or the other, and and to have this understanding of youth identity construction and how exclusion you know plays a role in their life in the longer term is something that I think we still lack and we need more of mm. to understand. Yeah. Mm. Ah, well, should we take a quick break and have a bit of a song and then come back and talk about some, talk about the Mokin? And yes. yes. <laughs> sure thing. Here's a quick track. Uh, word gets around. 